Welcome to the Fundraising Everywhere podcast. My name is Simon from Fundraising Everywhere and Everywhere Plus. In July 2020, Fundraising Everywhere hosted the first ever fundraising conference curated by and for people of color. Our curator for the event was Martha Awajobi, a consultant uh, who was voted in Fundraising Magazine's 25 most outstanding fundraisers under the age of 35. She's also one of the organizers of Charity So White. In this event, we had over 12 hours of authentic, engaging, and inspiring discussions to change the charity sector, to root out racism, and create fairer ways of working for all. You can find all of our events at fundraisingeverywhere.com and use the discount code FEPODCAST for a special treat. Hi, my name is Martha, and I am the curator and host of the First Fame Fundraising Conference. I spent two weeks doing consultations with fundraisers across the UK who are people of colour and BAME-led organisations to find out what they were looking for in a conference programme that would be by them and for them. So we have the most incredible lineup of POC talent across the sector. Um, we have inspirational stories of fundraisers who have succeeded against the odds. We have practical tips and the networks that you will need to boss your career as a person of colour and as a white person. This is not just for people of colour, this is for anybody who wants to learn how to do amazing fundraising, anybody who wants to know how to support their staff and how to build truly inclusive cultures. Okay, hello everybody, welcome to um, the first BAME Online Spotlight. Um, it feels really weird that it's been like two months since the conference, I've not done anything since actually, like I haven't done anything BAME Online related since, this is like my first my first trip back <laughs> into, into that world. Um, so today's event is going to be recorded. Um, nobody's got their cameras on, but you can have your camera on if you want so you can see your faces because not only is this a conversation between me and Mac, this is a conversation. I need to stop swinging around in my chair. Like, I really can't help it. I, do it all the time. <laughs> I know, but I'm like, this is a new chair. So I'm literally just going back and forth. Like, well, I've crossed my legs to stay still. Uh, so, so yes this is going to be recorded um if you don't want your image to um be recorded then yeah leave your camera off but yeah we'll talk for about half an hour um hopefully um but you know what happens when we both get going um, and then we'll open it up to um everyone else to ask my questions um so part of this event is yeah an introduction to Mac, but also an introduction to the Equal Group, which is Mac's data-driven EDI consultancy. Um, I think it will be really, really, really great um, once you've had a kind of yeah a chat with Mac and found out how amazing um, his approach and techniques are for people to give Mac their email address and the organisations they work for, so that he can book a mini consultation with you. Um, to talk to you about your organisations and how um, you can improve your EDI. Um, so I'll be dropping a, in fact, I'll drop it in now so you can sign up early if you fancy it. I will be dropping in a Google document. So just put your name, organisation and your email there to meet one-on-one -on -one with Mac um, if I could learn how to copy and paste. <laughs> that would really help. Um, just to let you know, um, when you're editing in this, be careful not to type on top of somebody else's name because sometimes you just end up writing the same time as other people. So maybe start from the bottom um, or the middle, just like not from the top. Um, <laughs> right, okay, cool. 
<laughs> so we're here. Um, I'm going to do introductions. Mac, I don't even have your. Oh, um, have I shared something? Stop. Uh, I think you have. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, there we go. Uh, I think when you put it in the chat, it just starts sharing. Oh, because you can click view together in room. Anyway, I'm not good at tech. Let's get cracking. So we have Mac here. Um, I don't think he needs an introduction uh, because I don't have his bio in front of me. Um, and he was one of the highlights for me at the BAME online fundraising conference um, because of one very specific quote, which was, if you don't think that black lives matter, don't say it. Um, we had a really quite um, intense uh, conversation about what does it mean uh, when, an organization, when an organization says, Black Lives Matter, um, and whether the statements that we've been seeing um, over the course of the summer were authentic or not. Um, and unfortunately, we all decided that the answer was no, they were not authentic. Um, and we're going to tell you a little bit about why. Um, so let's talk to you, Mac. Mac, tell us about yourself. How did you come to be the CEO of the Equal Group? And tell us what you do there. Um, so I'll start with kind of what we do first and then I'll, I'll kind of play out the journey so essentially we're an organization dedicated to helping um, companies essentially make equality diversity and inclusion easy um, we use that we do that using data and technology um, essentially getting as much qualitative and quantitative data as possible to shed a light on exactly what's going on within organizations um, I guess my journey to kind of starting up the, the company um, started kind of when I entered the workforce in around 2008. Um, <clears throat> I guess my background is in economic regulation. So within that space, we typically use data to tell a story, um, helping companies to essentially understand the landscape from a regulatory perspective, um, looking out five, 10, 15 years into the future. And as I progress through the industry, the energy industry is a very white male dominated space um very kind of middle class as well so a lot of privately educated individuals um oxford cambridge <clears throat> that kind of thing um and as i kind of progressed up the ranks it became whiter and whiter which is, is quite a feat because it was already pretty white um and i kind of looked around at kind of the the problems in relation to equality diversity inclusion i found that actually nobody was looking at the data nobody was doing anything meaningful it's all kind of unconscious bias training and, and policies and um fun food and flags <clears throat> in terms of awareness days and, and campaigns and posting rainbows and doing rainbow lanyards and nobody was actually looking at how do we systemically make changes to transform our organizations to ensure that um people have an opportunity to progress, to, to get paid fairly, to, to have a positive experience within an organization, regardless of what age, gender, ethnicity, religion, et cetera, et cetera, they were. Um, so we started the company two and a half years ago and really used data as a starting point. I think when you've got full visibility of kind of who's in the organization and how they, how they feel, you can kind of then start to form narratives and shape interventions around what your specific needs are um so essentially that looks like what demographic characteristics do people have ethnicity uh, gender sexual orientation etc etc but then how do they feel do they feel that they belong um and matching those two elements gives you an indication as to what the difference in experience is 
um, because a lot of time companies put out surveys, ask people's, people's opinion and assume that, you know, we've got a 79% approval rating. Everybody thinks it's a great place to work. But when you dig a little bit deeper, those 79 people that, that love the company could be the majority of the white men. Everybody else hates the company, um, but you're not really geared up to understand what that looks like and then kind of measuring that progress over time. Great, thank you. Um, so um, I forgot to do half the housekeeping, so I'm just going to finish doing that, which is if you do want to talk, you can talk to us. Um, just click on the chat button and you can work your hand up um, to say something. Hey, um, or you can write it in the chat. Um, you don't even need to use a hand. You can use, oh, I want to say something. <laughs> so, I'm so childish. Um, okay, cool. Um, so we've spoken about data. Um, organizations, especially charity sector organizations, um, use a lack of data as, um, I guess, a way to, to excuse not, not moving forward with EDI. Um, we found that in charity. So why it's been one of the hardest things <laughs> that uh, we've been up against in our, in, in our campaign. Um, what do you say to an organization who says that their lack of data is what's stopping them making change? Um, so I guess I, I would agree in terms of the starting point. I think the starting point is that you probably have poor data. Uh, you probably have a lack of data. You probably have data around gender but nothing else um <clears throat> but again that's not an excuse i think the data is out there um typically when you ask people for their data their only qualms are what are you going to use it for and if a company can't answer that question sufficiently they don't deserve to have that data so <clears throat> it has to be a more strategic um approach to getting that data to, to say actually this is the data that we need, this is what we're going to do with it, um, and therefore also be in a place to act once you get that data. And what you find is that typically organisations want to get data and spend loads of time trying to get data, but then aren't equipped to do anything with it in the first place. So if you've got no lived experience of what a microaggression is, what's the point asking people to highlight to you what, you know, what microaggressions they're facing? Or um, you could say the same for any kind of other structural issues within the workplace um but for us it's a case of we can help you get that data you know we, we see the work that we do is collaborative we act as an intermediary because we understand that actually there's a, a element of distrust between employees and employees to say actually if i am a, a hyper minority so if i'm, I'm you know a, a different um, ethnicity or, or sexual orientation or religion or, or anything else. What's a, hyper, what's a hyper minority? You say a type of minority or a hyper? Hi, hyper, hyper. So it's super minority. I don't know. Is that me? Sorry? So if uh, you're... Am I like a super minority? Because I'm like triple a minority. Triple yeah, exactly. Threat. You are. You are. <laughs> and, and I guess the, the point is like when you, if you give your data, we will automatically know that it's you because yeah. you're such a minority. Um, and that gives people the sense that actually I can't say, firstly, I can't say who I am. And then secondly, I can't disclose what my true feelings are. So if I say, I think my manager's a bit of an idiot and I'm a higher minority, you're gonna say, we know that you actually, this probably isn't the place for you anymore. Um, so it gives people that sense that actually, if I speak up 
uh, I'm going to have a target on my back. Um, mm-hmm. But what we do is we, we help companies to get that data and anonymize it so that individuals can't be identified through the, the data acquisition process. Um, and what that does is it restores that trust. So employees feel that they can honestly give their opinions, that mm-hmm. their opinions will be taken into consideration, but without that same threat of uh, being identified or it having any kind of negative repercussions. Um, mm-hmm. And just to kind of demonstrate what that looks like, we help we typically help organisations get 85% visibility across all demographics. Um, recently, we helped the client get 96%. Um, Ooh, how many people worked at that place? Are you going to say like five? No, no, so uh, 370-ish. That's brilliant. How? How? Please, okay, maybe you can't it's, share your secrets with us, but... No, no, it's, 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 it's all about trust, um, I say. Yeah. So uh, an organisation or staff within an organisation are more likely to trust us um, than the actual organisation that they work for. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that comes from our ability to anonymise. So your data is not going to HR, it's not going to your line manager. We use that data to um, assess the situation and help organisations to improve. And really what we're, we're seeing is that when you can pin down some objectives and say, you know, this is what we intend to do once we've got this data, people are definitely happy to, to kind of disclose what their issues are. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's quite interesting because I guess like sometimes you come across these like surveys or whatever it is and it's like, okay, but what is this for? Like, I feel like I'm just, like, baiting myself out as an unhappy person here because, like, yeah, and, and I get I that. I did the same in, in, in the workplace, you know, when these surveys used to come out and say, we want you to bring your whole self to work, I would roll my eyes and delete the email because you don't, like, let's, let's face it, let's, let's be honest, you don't want me to bring my whole self to work. You wouldn't know how to cope if I did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's not play games and, and say things you don't mean. <laughs> yeah I'm starting to realize as I'm spending more and more time like in this field like how much people just like not even like they say that they people say what they don't mean but they don't even know that what they're saying is what they don't mean right so, <laughs> so, so let's talk about internal audits then you've spoken about kind of like staff satisfaction surveys and that do you think there is any credibility in an organization doing um, I guess doing the doing the EDI work themselves internally. Um, yes and no. So I think on, on the yes, you know, you have to start somewhere, and it's always good as an organisation to be introspective and, and understand kind of what you're doing, how that looks, um, whether you're meeting your own expectations. Um, I would say no because there's a certain amount of bias that goes into it, and as I said before, that example of of 79% approval rating, you look at things through these kind of blinkers to say actually, you know, 79% is, is better than 50, but actually you're not doing that robust analytics to say what what 79% of the population does that um, impact. <clears throat> also looking for opportunities to do better on things like gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, because those are typically minority cohorts within your organisation, but if you're not looking at them, it can become um, problematic. And what you see is that those communities typically have A, different issues, but B, um, the implications of them leaving, so high attrition rates, um, difficulty to attract, and a lot of people spend a lot of time and money trying to attract diverse people. Um, but if you're losing them at a quicker rate, then you're kind of just just pouring your money down the drain. Um, 
So I say that, but also there is a need for independence. And we see this in, in the financial space probably more than any, um, in that you take your finances seriously. So you get somebody else in externally to verify that. You don't take equality, diversity and inclusion seriously. That's why you're, you're kind of um, happy for a grad to, to take on that responsibility. Or you're happy for someone to do it in their spare time, they have their spare time. Um, what that means is that you, you don't get that level of, of expertise, you don't get that level of um, real dedication that it takes to actually transform things in this space. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, and yes, something we were talking about yesterday, something I've been really kind of like shocked by is um, the amount of people who've come to me to ask me to do some very, very kind of like serious, like data driven EDI work. And like, let's be honest, Mike, I'm a fundraiser. <laughs> I have been a fundraiser for the last 10 years. Uh, I definitely can, you know, create a nice event um, and talk very passionately about race, but I actually have no, experience or history like setting these kinds of like intricate like yeah edi strategies um what do you think about the way that um where edi sits in an organization that doesn't um look externally um what do you think is going wrong um and how can people i know i'm like look at that face because i'm like oh everything Literally everything, isn't it? Like, it's actually quite terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> What's I mean, the, the most? <laughs> yeah, to, 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 I guess, speak specifically, and you would have seen it kind of around the whole Black Lives Matter thing. You've got people with absolutely no lived experience that are in charge of, of budgets, in charge of kind of what organisations do to respond. And what that led to is a, a lack of response um, and then also uh, inaccurate response in that people were happy just to post up black squares and, and to um, do kind of the marketing press releases without being introspective and saying actually where have we gone wrong internally um, but you also see like um, very junior people being appointed to, to kind of lead EDI projects and obviously I can't make too many generalizations but I don't know many kind of grads, you know, 22, 23, 24, that have the ability to challenge leadership teams. And that's what's needed in this space. You know, if you're going to challenge systemic oppression, racism, um, issues of inequality that manifest um, in several different places, you know, in, in kind of all levels of the organisation, you need somebody that has that visibility, that experience that has set in executive leadership rooms and, and has engaged on that level otherwise what you're doing is you're really giving somebody a remit but with no way you know no no personal capability to mm -hmm. make the changes that are needed um just setting them up for failure really isn't yeah, it we've done it though we've got our adi person who has no power can't do anything exactly like, <laughs> you know. and, and you, you wouldn't do it for something that you took seriously you know you wouldn't put a grad as the head of your finance or, or head of your IT no. team. Mm -hmm. So why would you do the same thing for the head of EDI? It's so interesting because, you know, it's like, it kind of, it just shows like, just like, yeah, that like lack of, lack of knowledge of like how much, how important this work is, like how credible this work is, like how serious it is. And it's like kind of considering the scale of all of this Black Lives Matter panic, like what's actually been put into place is quite abysmal. 
um, quite abysmal. Um, it's quite worrying. So I'm like, well, now we're going to set ourselves back even further <laughs> because, Definitely. like, uh, yeah, we're going to put all this. What you said yesterday, actually, took. So I'm, I'm stealing all your answers. I'm like, this is, this is what Perfect. I think. <laughs> um, talking about like budgets, then um, is. Is enough money dedicated to equality, diversity, and inclusion? Um, potentially, I, I think the <clears throat> the so firstly, no, uh, generally, but I think as a starting point to understand the kind of what you need to do, there is money, but what you see again is a, a symptom of the the wrong people being in that leadership position or, or in that EDI position. What you're seeing is companies wasting time and money on kind of unconscious bias training and fun food and flags and you know let, let's paint this a certain color and let's light up the, the lights of the building and all of this stuff that's never going to make a difference you know um <clears throat> when you talk about experiences that minorities have within within workplaces uh, another event to talk about those experiences is that gonna make the changes that you want to see because these are systemic issues that we're talking about. We're talking about infrastructure, mm -hmm. we're talking about processes, we're talking about policies, we're talking about procedures, we're talking about <clears throat> the way that people interact on a day-to-day -day basis. And unless you've got a means to assess where you are now, assess where you want to be, and then plot out that journey of, of what it's going to take strategically to get there, you're really missing the point. And you know, one unconscious bias training session for two hours every year isn't really going to do anything um, and what it what it does actually probably has a negative effect in that it, it antagonizes minority groups to say actually <clears throat> if your answer to the microaggressions that i face the the poor progression opportunities that, that i have um if your answer to all of these systemic issues is to do a, you know one hour two hour training session every year you really don't understand the issues or, or mm -hmm. the reasons for these issues in the first place. Yeah, that's in the yeah. oh, Your question, your question was about budget, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so in terms that's of budget, <laughs> in terms of budget, I feel like if people really understood the value that could be added in relation to equality, diversity, and inclusion, they would allocate more money to it. So if you understand, as I said, the the kind of <clears throat> paradigm whereby you've got a lot of money being spent on marketing a lot of money being spent on recruitment campaigns to get diverse people in but you're never addressing the, the systemic racism that is in your organization what you're doing is you're attracting people into a, an environment where they can't thrive and then after a year two years they'll leave and really what you want to see is people staying people investing in the organization bringing their best self to, to work in terms of like being able to deliver in the role that they um, that have been appointed to, um, and you know stick around for the long term. And if you can't mm -hmm. if you can't retain diverse staff, then all of the money that you spend on recruiting diversity and your marketing and making sure that you've got black people in your pictures, it's all money down the drain. Yeah, that's so. I mean, I feel like the sector is so 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 kind of guilty of this like short sighted um way of approaching like which is yeah it's basically diversity there's no inclusion um i know in my last job 
like people of color were just dropping like flies like and we were all talking to each other and we were all making packs together to leave it was like right you're leaving i can't be the only other person of color here as soon as you leave i'm starting looking for a new job like it is and like and it's happening everywhere like every single organization i've worked in pretty much i've had a leaving pact with the only other person of color there <laughs> Because I'm just like, I can't, like, yeah, without your, without your mate, like, actually, what is, what is, what is there keeping you at that organisation? Actually, pretty much all organisations I've worked with, the only reason I've stayed longer is because of the other people of colour that I worked with. Yeah. And they, yeah. it, it was literally like them leaving. I mean, my first job, my friend Cynthia left, I was out. <laughs> I was like, goodbye, I have no one to have lunch with. <laughs> so, do you think that, I mean, I know that, the sector isn't always, it isn't like, yeah, you're the only the only um, sector that you're working in, but you know, if what you know of the charity sector, I'm like, yikes, this answer is already bad. <laughs> Do, is, the, is the sector aware of the work that's needed? Um, is it brave enough? Um, we had a conversation yesterday about um, the NHS and how they started kind of linking um, EDI commitments and KPIs to the bonuses of senior um, members of staff. Um, what do we need to be doing to force this? Does that NHS thing even work? Um, what would you suggest, Mark? How can we have re repercussions attached to EDI? Yeah, as you said, it's, it's, it's about bravery. It's about leadership. It's about people really understanding, um, <clears throat> firstly, what is it that they want to see? Um, what does that look like? So, because the the reason I mentioned that is that some organisations, unfortunately, might be happy with black people leaving at twice the rate of their, their white colleagues, um, or feeling like they have to face microaggressions, um, and that speaks to the ideologies of, of the leadership team. Speaks to, um, I guess, the prevalence of, of white supremacy sometimes. Um, but I say that to say, if leaders genuinely want change they have to be bold and they have to be brave and they have to um, look at it in the same way that they would look at other things. So if you wanted, you know, as, as a fundraiser, um, we talked also yesterday about the, the targets that you're set as, as a fundraiser, um, which can be quite aggressive. So if you're looking at equality, diversity and inclusion through the same lens in that you, you take it seriously, you have to set targets in the same way and have the same repercussions to say, if you don't meet your targets in relation to equality, diversity, inclusion, you're out because the, the organization cannot sustain itself or cannot achieve its vision without a true sense of everybody pulling in the right direction to achieve equality, diversity and inclusion objectives. Mm -hmm. I would love to be, I'd love to be able to be like, you haven't met your EDI target, you are out. <laughs> That's the dream. But, it's, but it's, also, it's, also, it's, it's a good point. I think it's also about making sure that those objectives are robust because yeah. your, your targets can't be about just representation and, and mm -hmm. one of the things I always say is that there's no point being equally representative in terms of you know proportional to your, your geographic region if everybody's experience within the organization is terrible as you said people of color are in organizations and they're making packs to leave and they're facing microaggressions um, they're not treated on similar terms so the objectives the targets have to be more mature than just mm -hmm. how many people of color do we have in in a particular room or at board level it has to go deeper than that into experience it has to go deeper in terms of rates of progression 
um, and that kind of thing. Okay, <clears throat> God, it's, it's, I'm literally just like the amount of work that is needed. But I think, you know, like you're saying, like if you've thought about this in terms of like your finance strategy, your marketing strategy, your business development strategy, they are so detailed, like they're so well thought out. Like, you know, you're thinking like five years ahead, like where do I want to position myself as this leader in this X, Y, Z? Why is it not the same for EDI? And why do people not realize if you get the EDI right, the rest of it will follow. Um, so I have a question from Kim um, and she has asked, sorry, I've made an assumption about your gender. They've asked, how do we strike the balance between making sure EDI positions are held by those um, with the power to make change within an organization and the importance of lived experience in these roles. Lived experience versus professional experience, especially as the higher tiers of management are usually much less diverse. It's a very good question. Um, and I think kind of touching on what you said earlier, Martha, in terms of the internal versus the external, I think sometimes the power dynamics at play within organisations are so severe or so, so negative that even if um, even if a suitably senior person <clears throat> took up the, the, the project or took up the mantle for equality, diversity, and inclusion, if things are so systemically ingrained, what kind of driver is there for leadership teams to listen to, to that internal person? Um, and I think this is where kind of we come in as external providers to say, actually, there's certain things that I can say to leaders that somebody in HR wouldn't be able to get away with because there's that historic relationship that, that's built up there's that kind of power dynamic at play you know how do i tell my boss that i think he's a bit racist how do i tell my boss that what he says is um, inappropriate from kind of a, a microaggressive perspective how do i tell my my boss that the way that he talks to his staff is is you know is problematic and that actually the impact of that is um completely negative so i understand that actually regardless of seniority regardless of professional experience some situations just aren't conducive to, to having those conversations um but I, th I think the point was about balancing lived experience with professional experience um there's certain things that you can do in order to supplement that so i think executive sponsors are, are really good i think if you've got a ceo that is um, progressive and, and really wants to make changes <laughs> about making sure that that CEO has um, EDI closely linked to to kind of what he's doing so that the message is always coming from the most senior person therefore that reinforces the importance of that individual's role um, and there's certain things that, that leaders need to do to empower their EDI professionals so giving them budget giving them kind of standing agenda items, making sure that they're constantly checking on the progress that they're making, the progress that they're not making and, and what the barriers are and helping to unpick some of those barriers. Sorry to interrupt. This is Simon Scriver again from Fundraising Everywhere. Just wanted to remind you that you can find all of the recordings from this event uh, and all of our other events in video and podcast format at fundraisingeverywhere.com and use the discount code FEPODCAST for a special treat. Thanks. Um, it's quite interesting. I think at the conference there was a conversation about lived experience versus professional experience. And one of the, pe one of the people there was like, well, they are on the same level. 
they yeah they were like you know we, we need to be valuing lived experience in exactly like to, I think the same amount that we value professional experience um yeah it's definitely not more. Right? I think I think it's not more. oh I like yeah. that this sounds good to me <laughs> the, the reason I say that is I can't remember um I think I was on a podcast recently um and we're talking about exactly the same thing and I think <clears throat> the requirement to have so and so many years of professional experience is ridiculous because I've met loads of people with 10, 15 years experience on paper and they're absolutely rubbish. They're, they're completely incompetent. So um, what is it you're looking for? Is it you're looking for somebody that's effective in, in the role or somebody that has done the role wrong for a number of years? And especially in kind of the, the EDI space, you know, <laughs> I often laugh at kind of practitioners that have been in this space for for decades and um kind of walk around puffing out their chest and saying you know been doing this for 20 years and my you know my response to that is you've been doing it for 20 years and we're still in such a, a dire situation what have you been doing for the last 20 years and i know what you've been doing you've been doing unconscious bias training you've been having difficult conversations fun flies um, and food as you exactly. said i love that that yeah. is i'm yeah. taking that f, f and f I, I <laughs> somewhere, so, so i probably should um probably should credit whoever came up with it. well you don't know who it is so. <laughs> 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 um thank you um i've had another question come in um I'm trying to condense it into a shorter question because otherwise I'll read the whole thing out. Um, and it is from Catherine, um, and it is about um, if you're in a small organisation um, of say 12 people, um, how can you ensure the anonymity um, of yeah of of your staff um, when you're collecting this data? Um, how can you how do you ensure that people aren't identified if there's like if it's really good if I'm a super minority like me? <laughs> I love that. Me too. So the short um, short answer is that you, you can't really. Um, if it's 12, 12 people, you kind of um, you're going to know who everybody is. Um, and even from a perception perspective, if I perceive that HR is doing this survey and there's only 12 of us and I'm a super minority, how honest am I going to be? And how likely am I going to be to, to engage with that? So I think that's the point that you need to start looking externally uh, and understand what support can be done externally. I think um, when it comes to kind of making assumptions and, and kind of looking at what the analysis is in terms of the, that kind of group of, of individuals, it becomes less important who said what but becomes more important as to what is the, the general observation about what's happening and what needs to change. And I think once you can kind of um, elevate that, that level of conversation to say, actually, these are the things that we know are happening. This is what we intend to do about them. Um, that then protects people's anonymity to say, actually, we don't necessarily need to know that it was this person or this person. What we do need to know is is what are we going to do as an organisation to respond to some of the things that we're seeing? Yeah, um, well, it is it is it's it's really hard. I keep thinking about like myself. I've never filled in one of these surveys before. I see, I've never been in an organisation that's cared enough to, to give one out. Um, or I think we did one like staff staff satisfaction survey, in kind of the last place I was in, um, where we discovered that everybody hated it but I was very focused on like, but look at the 60% of people who 
really like it here. Um, and I was just like, I don't know. It and it's funny as well. Because, over what, and over again. <laughs> it's funny. What, what you find is that pe- the people that are most um, negative about the company are probably least likely to engage in those surveys. Mm-hmm. So, similarly to yourself, when I used to get those surveys, I'd roll my eyes and delete them within yeah. like five seconds. It wasn't even a, a thought as to whether I was going to fill it in or not. Of course I'm not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think, you know, being able to show or demonstrate that your organisation is really taking this seriously. Um, if it was like, you know, I've brought in this external agency. Um, this is their track record. This is what they look like. Because if someone came in and it was a white woman, I'd be like, I'm not engaging with this. <laughs> so like but I think yeah you can kind of tell like the level of seriousness when it comes to like yeah anti-racism um and I definitely engage more when I can see that an effort's been made and I can tell the difference um so let's talk about uh, sniffing out bs uh, first thing in the morning um, <laughs> I, um over the summer um charity so white ran a campaign um that we call the cookie campaign um and it is where we went online and we um saw that all of these organizations third sector organizations were proving their black lives matter credentials writing these statements posting these squares uh making commitments or not making any commitments at all um and what we were doing was we asked um their staff members to put a cookie on these statements on Twitter, a cookie emoji, uh, to show that they knew that what was happening internally was not matching up to the um, the pretzel weaving statements, as we like to call them. So we asked people to put cookies and pretzels. <laughs> Performative pretzels is what we called them. Um, and um, the, sad, the sad truth was that um, most people came to us and said, we're too afraid to cookie our organizations. We're afraid that we might get fired. Um, can you? please put a cookie um, underneath XYZ organization to show that we know that they're lying. Um, it was quite interesting. A lot of people were frightened over that time period. Who ever thought that a cookie emoji could stir up so much fear in, <laughs> in the power of humor? Um, when we last spoke about this two months ago, both of us were unconvinced by any of the Black Lives Matter statements that we'd seen. How do you feel now? Two months later, um, equally, maybe, equally, maybe, maybe even more so. Yeah, yeah, I'm more so. I'm actually way more so, um, which is really sad, isn't it? Um, but I guess we weren't hopeful, so it's not like we're disappointed. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. So, what's what's what what would you have liked to happen, and what's actually happened? Um, oh, I would have liked some organisations to come out and and kind of throw their whole EDS strategy in the bin. Um, e- I guess even in the, the performative pretzels and the, the marketing um, rubbish that was <laughs> that was circulated and published, you had people responding to Black Lives Matter saying BAME and, and still not understanding kind of what needs to be dissected within the organisation to understand actually that there are differences within within BAME. Um, <clears throat> understanding things like intersectionality, understanding the the very real manifestations of um, what does a different different um, experience within the workplace look like. What are the what are the things that we need to be tracking? Um, what we've seen is companies come out saying, "Yes, we support," and that's it. What you support? 
you, 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 what does that mean? What does that look like? And I think for me, I guess it's, it's a little bit different because I'm, I'm not in an organization and I don't necessarily have an affinity to, to kind of um, an employer. But I can imagine for a lot of people within companies that do have employers, that do have leadership teams, um, I can imagine if they're feeling dejected, I can imagine that they're feeling very alienated, I can imagine that they're feeling let down to say, actually, I've given weeks, months, years, maybe even decades of my life to this organisation on the premise that they will do right by me. You know, they'll pay me fairly, they'll promote me when I need to be promoted, they'll support me when I need support. And that's just not been the case. So it's a, it's a question of where do we go from here? What, what is it that you expect from your black colleagues and staff? And what are you willing to do to create an environment where they feel valued? Because otherwise, mm -hmm. it's akin to slavery. You're yeah. expecting people to, to invest in your organisation. You're expecting people to do their best. You're expecting people to, you know, go the extra mile and, and live your values and, and kind of be an advocate for you as an organisation. But you're not willing to weed out or even identify the barriers that they face on a day-to-day -day basis. You're not willing to tackle the microaggressions. You're not willing to <clears throat> really have a, a zero tolerance policy to racism and manifestations of racism. So what, 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 where do you think this ends? Do you, do you think we just continue to be pacified by these rubbish statements of, of Black Lives Matter and, and we support racial equality or tolerance? And where, where does this end? We support tolerance, you know. That's how it feels. It feels like these statements are, we tolerate you. And we will continue to tolerate you being in our organization. We don't want you, but we tolerate you because we, otherwise it makes us look bad. And like, I think that's been my experience in the majority of organizations has been like, I've been tolerated there because <laughs> they needed me. But don't get too loud. Don't get too loud, babes, or you're out. I'm like, well, <laughs> wowie. Um, I've definitely felt under surveillance um, in most places I've worked in. Oh, I've got a big personality as well, um, and that with some luscious brown skin, like it's not, it's not, it's not good. Um, I definitely feel like, yeah, under like unusual, unusual scrutiny. Um, most places I've worked, being watched all the time. Any misstep, and it's like they will know. Oh, 100%. <laughs> I feel that. Like yeah. I'm not sure if I spoke to you about this, but the I didn't speak to you. I spoke to someone else. Um, the kind of the, the tolerance of failure is just not there for, for people of colour a lot of time. So you can you cannot make a mistake within an organisation. Yeah. Whereas your peers, your superiors, the very top leadership can make as many mistakes as they want. Racist mistakes, misogynist mistakes, you know, verging on um, cr criminal mistakes and still kind of be all right. You know, we, we saw Dominic Cummins just just blatantly um, fell out the, the lockdown rules and still got a job, still getting paid a ridiculous amount of money. Um, all, all of the, the kind of cabinet making mistakes upon mistakes, mistakes make, and, and nobody's calling for resignations. I think they are kind of in the last couple of weeks, but you look at Diane Abbott that, that had a, a gin and tonic on a train and, and all of a sudden she, she people wanted her put in jail and executed. <laughs> 
<laughs> honestly the standards is wild i mean i just yeah sometimes it's like i don't know like sometimes i feel like i'm in my own version of the Truman show because i'm like this is like so glaringly obvious like it can't be real um, <laughs> um has anyone got any questions for matt because i know that we've been talking for longer than we said we were going to talk if you do have any questions pop them in the chat or just like turn your camera on put your hand thing on Shove us an emoji. Um, I will take it. My doorbell has been ringing for like a million years really? throughout like this for the last five minutes. And I'm just like, I'm not going to answer it because I'm in the middle of an event. But I'm like, who is it? Um, okay. Well, I'm just going to carry on then and ask you some questions myself. I don't even know where to begin. Um, so let's talk about cherry picking and misusing data then. Um, do you think that that's like a real kind of problem, that that's like a conscious effort, or is it just kind of the business is all usual, that's how we operate and it's not actually as intentional? That's uh, an interesting question, potentially a bit of a loaded question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think for some organisations it's intentional. I think for others it's a symptom of their um, misunderstanding of what, good looks like I think as as organizations generally we've not done the best um, job of getting good data um, and making it visible so I think there's, there's organizations that have data they may not be willing to, to sh shine a light on the data they've got but one of the things that I always say is that you know when we work with organizations we work specifically on data kind of first and foremost um, and one of the things I say is that you have to be honest and transparent about the data that you have good and bad you know, because yeah. I, as, as a minority within the workplace, would have respected, um, I guess would have ex respected kind of that level of transparency with people, organisations, leaders saying, this is where we are today, this is by no means where we want to be, we're, we're being visible about this, so that we can demonstrate the progress that we're making, or not because you won't always make progress, but it's about having that intent to say, there's no hidden agenda here. Mm -hmm. There's no kind of, there's there's nothing on untoward going on. And really what that does is, is, you know, I spoke earlier about trust and it builds up this trust to say, actually, I know that my employer is off the mark or close to the mark or whatever it is, but I know that they are serious about this because they're not hiding things from me. Mm -hmm. I can see the same level of data that the HR team can see. And this is where it becomes important to anonymize things to say, actually, yeah. we've got things in process to, in progress to make sure that people's individual identities aren't, um, aren't jeopardized, but that we all have access to the same level of information um, so that we can demonstrate or get an indication of exactly what's going on, um, the progress that we're making. But then also looking at accountability to say, actually, if everybody sees the issues, then it's everybody's responsibility to make sure that we're making progress. And it's not just a HR thing and we're not waiting for the annual, you know, Pride mm -hmm. or, or International Women's Day or Black History Month. Um, <clears throat> I wonder why are organisations so afraid to admit fault? Because, um, I mean, to me, and that, it makes that... Uh, it makes it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever like this especially like charity sector organizations like you know i think like by our kind of by the values of the sector because i'm in, i'm now very skeptical as to what the values of the sector really are <laughs> i've been mean, worked in the sector for 10 years i'm like hmm, 
I don't know if I trust this place. Um, <laughs> but um, I guess, you know, the values of our sector is about kind of like honesty, transparency, and that around more social justice. Um, why are we unable to admit that we need help? So I guess I'll, I'll kind of tackle the, the sectoral value um, comment because I don't think it's, it's possible to have values as a sector. You, you can't, there's no amount of accountability that an individual organisation can take for what's happening across the sector. So it's really about understanding um, what your company values are. What, what is it that you stand for? Um, I think across the sector, you're always going to get people that are just in it for the money, just in it for the the, the publicity, the feel, the feeling that you get from thinking that you're helping African kids when you're not. <laughs> um, there's there's that kind of um, privilege. <laughs> that's that's yeah, the feeling. <laughs> that kind of um, I guess personal personal objectives that are, that are in this space. Um, but I think that that gen generally we as, as humans believe that when we're doing something good it is um it is wholly good if that makes sense so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. no matter how we do it it's always good and that's yeah. a ridiculous mindset to have you know if, if you're um trying to help somebody and the person that you're trying to help tells you that actually the best way to help me would to be to do abc but you say actually no i want to do xyz that yeah. automatically puts you at a disposition to say actually am i being as helpful as, as i need to be or what are the ways that i can improve the quality of the, the the service or product that i'm providing and without that introspection without that analytical reflection to say you know these are the areas that we fall short it then becomes about you and not about the the end user or the, the community that you're trying to help Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i definitely think that kind of like we are we're doing good work therefore we can't we have to we are good people um trope needs to needs to stop we should be very self-reflective um, as an organization yeah, that has such an impact on the most yeah the most marginalized in our society um i think it's also about, about understanding kind of the the wider environment as well because we need to start looking at um the other impacts so it's not just about kind of the the service that you provide it's about how you provide that service so who are you using um who is benefiting off off of you off of what you do um wider than kind of the, the demographic but even more important who's not benefiting yeah god there's so much work that needs to go into all of this right it's kind of like yeah once you kind of start <laughs> scratching you're like Oh wow! Okay, <laughs> we've barely even scratched the surface of where we need to be in order to be the kind of society that I would like to live in. Um, so let's talk about um, what's gone well, I guess, um, since um, we last met um, at Bame Online. Um, if anyone has an example of an organisation that they think has responded really well to um, Black Lives Matter, to the fact that institutional racism is no longer invisible, um, although I thought it was pretty visible before COVID-19 um, laid bare um, all of the inequalities, but I think now we can see for sure, and definitely white people can see that racism literally kills. Um, I My example of an organisation that I think has gone above and beyond is the National Trust. 
Um, I don't know if anyone has seen um, what's happened, but they've basically kind of documented the colonialism and slavery that's kind of linked with all of the um, artifacts and the grounds and stuff that they keep and basically purge themselves of their racist membership, uh, <laughs> which was quite something to see online. And I do feel very sorry for their social media team. Um, that was a very kind of big outward display. Um, and I don't know if it's reflective of what's happening on the inside. Um, I feel like you wouldn't go that hard on the outside if you weren't going hard on the inside, but am I wrong, Mac? <laughs> I think, no, I think, I think you're right in terms of that um, ambition and, and kind of setting things out in um, no uncertain terms to say, this is, this is who we are, this is our history, this is what we're aware of. Um, and being honest and transparent about kind of what, what we're doing to address certain things. Um, and I'm not that close to what, what the National Trust are doing, so I'm not going to um, pretend to be an expert on the subject. But um, I feel that it speaks to wider work that's needed to really start to really start to, to analyse the, the impact wider than just putting out a Black Lives Matter statement to, to really um, question yourself and question our organisations to say what what have we done historically what are we proud of what are we not so proud of and again building up that that honest um presentation to say this is who we are this is what, what we've done um and this is what we're going to do going forward um and you know as you said about kind of the, the social media implications there's always going to be racists uh, i think we'd be we'd be um deeply naive to, to think that we can stamp out racism in, in our generation um, but what we need to do is to allow racists to remove themselves from kind of the, the general workings of our organisations to say, if we are an anti-racist organisation, there is no place for racists here. And what that does is it makes, it puts racist people in a difficult situation to say, I can either stop being racist or go and find somewhere else to be racist. <laughs> and that's that's um, i think it's for me it's, it's a very um it's a very real choice and i think as a society if we want to be an anti-racist society we have to have more of these places where it's not acceptable to be racist and i think for so long and and linking back to the national trust historical analysis for so long we have tolerated racism not just tolerated it promoted it and it. allowed people to, to benefit off racism mm -hmm. What we need to do is create environments where it's no longer beneficial to be a racist. Yeah. And that's going to take work. That's going to take analysis. That's going to take visibility to say, this is what it looks like when we allow and facilitate and celebrate racists. This mm -hmm. is what it looks like when we don't. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think we're finally, finally getting to a place where we're questioning our kind of celebration of racism because I think the majority of people, and I know that a lot of people who are celebrating racism don't understand that they're celebrating racism. They think they're celebrating Britain. And it's like, sorry, <laughs> that equals it's, racism. It's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic as well, because when you look at kind of the political elite and you look at recent things with regards to COVID and um, the A-level GCSE results, there's a, a large disconnect in that people have not understood how the decisions that are being made by political elites, so-called elite, um, are racist and, and deeply entrenched in this this 
one dimensional view that um, that impacts probably communities of color and, and to some extent um, working class communities disproportionately. Yeah. Wow, it's actually 10 o'clock. <laughs> We've been talking away. Um, if anyone's got any last minute questions, please drop them in the chat. I am going to send this Google Doc in and you can put your email address and name there to book a one-to-one -one with Mac. Um, you'll not be disappointed. I often have one-to-ones with Mac and they are awesome. <laughs> um, thank you everybody for coming to the first BAME Online Spotlight session. Um, hopefully you found this illuminating um, and this is um, has been an eye-opening um, foray into how much work actually needs to be done. Um, the fact that we've got all of our starting points wrong um, and how important it is to build trust when doing this EDI work. And that's, that includes admitting um, faults. Oh, hi, Sapna. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I want to talk to you actually. Um, yeah, thank you so much everybody for joining. Um, keep in touch with me and Mac. Um, I will put our, I don't know, LinkedIn's um, in that follow-up email. I'm like Twitter, I feel like Twitter's very unprofessional. I, I roll in Twitter. Mac, you're not really a Twitter no, guy. I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm really, I'm really, I'm trying. Are you? I can see yeah. that you're trying. You're not, like, when I say trying, I'm not. I just like, I'm really <laughs> No, it's so insincere, all of that. Woo! <laughs> Oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much, everybody, for coming. Um, have a lovely day, and I'll see you for the next Spotlight session, which you can all vote on which of your favourite fundraising conference. I forgot what my own conference is called. Fame Online. Fame Online. <laughs> I'm like, what is it? <laughs> um, vote um, on your favourite Fame Online session, um, and I will... Uh, chain turn the highest voted ones into spotlight sessions where we can have an intimate chat with uh, myself and the speakers. Um, I'll send to the details after the event. Um, it's 10 o'clock. Okay, everybody, you're free to go. Mac, you are amazing. Thank you so you much too. for joining Thank me this you. morning. Thanks. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> um, have a nice morning, everyone. Thank you so much for listening back to the recording of this. We hope you'll be able to join us for the live event next time. In the meantime, if you want to check out all of our events and look at all of the content we have available for instant access, then please go to fundraisingeverywhere.com. You can use the discount code FEPODCAST for a special treat.